Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, hello, hello. It's so good to see you all this morning. So glad you joined us. Uh, for worship this morning. If you're tuning in online, we're glad you joined us as well. We hope that you're able to connect with us even though it's through a screen. Uh, if you're new or newish, my name is Aaron Bjorklund. I'm one of the pastors here at South. Uh, the guy who's normally up here, Alex, is actually getting a little bit of a break. We try and give him, give him at least one break a year. Um, so he's, that's what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> so he's, he's been on the, in the pulpit quite a bit lately and so he gets the break uh, today. And uh, if you are new or newish, we actually have a table just for you in the lobby. Um, it's called the New Here Table. The table, you can go there and talk to someone about the, getting involved in the community here. We'll give you a loaf of bread there and help you get connected. Now, let me tell you, I think, I'd like to think at least, that some of my sermon prep this morning has been of some value and that we're going to get something out of this today. But... Let me say, if, if this is your only experience of church, coming and singing some songs and hearing a sermon, if that's your only experience of church, then you're missing out. You're missing out on the good stuff. That's not what being part of a church family is all about. And so if you feel like you've not fully tapped into all of, like, I'm not sure if this church thing's working for me, maybe you just need to get plugged in a little bit deeper and, and dive in. And that table's for you to help you connect with us. And there's relationships to be had and all of these sorts of things. There's opportunities for you to, for you to use your gifts and so on and so forth. A couple more orders of business. Uh, we have a podcast that we run midweek on Thursday mornings. Alex and I do a deep dive in called the Red Couch Theology Podcast. In this podcast, we try and answer some of your questions. If you want to take a picture of this phone number, you can send in your questions. This is a place where we, we sometimes ask some of the stickier, more confusing, difficult questions that we can't quite cover for time reasons on a Sunday morning. We try and answer some of your questions and that sort of thing. And uh, I'm sure the conversation this week will be fun as well. So tune in there, subscribe, all those things. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're in this series called Between You and Me. And it's a series about marriage. And maybe more accurately, because Alex kicked off the series with a sermon about singleness, so maybe it's more just how does the way of Jesus invite us in with, in, in our posture towards romantic relationships? And so uh, we recognize that not everyone in this room is married, and we recognize that not everyone in this room will ever be married, but uh, we still think it's significant. We're still giving this message, even though we, it may not be, feel relevant to all of us, and here's why. Alex shared in the last few weeks that, statistically speaking, if you aren't married, uh, you either want to be married, you will be married, you have been married, or you are married. That's quite a few of, of you, and so that's a chunk. But if that still doesn't catch you, statistically, uh, then... This one might. The health of a community and a society is significantly affected by the health of the marriages within it. So that, let me say that again, the health of this church family, this church community, and this society, this neighborhood, this area is affected by the health of the marriages within it. There is something about the way God designed marriage to, it, it actually has ripple effects that take place in a community that either accentuates, beautifies, 
or hurts a community. And so if you're single, your experience of this church family will be um, increased if our marriages are stronger or it will be weakened if our marriages are weaker. So it's a big deal for all of us. So there you go. That's my best attempt to get us all into the same page here. Um, But I also want to acknowledge before I dive in any further that uh, this subject can be really close to home for some of us. And we're going to be talking about, inevitably when you're talking about marriage, you also talk about divorce. And um, I know that that subject can get really close to home. It's harmed many of you. Some of you have gone through that yourself or you've had a loved one or parents or, 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 or. And um, I thought, so I, I, I'm a crier. I cried all through last service and I thought maybe I would drain it out and it was going to go away, but I'm already sensing it coming on. So um, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm just going to try and press through. Uh, I want you to, to realize that the teachings of Jesus are invitations to life. They are not invitations to shame. So if shame or guilt or those things are swelling up, that is not, that is not from the Spirit. Shame and guilt do not produce the righteousness of God. The love of God does. Okay, so let's start there. There's, but I still want to see you, <laughs> for those of you uh, who've gone through this and acknowledge that that's the case. Now, for some of you, you'll, you, you feel like as the series continues, you may say, you may say I want to get better at this, or I'm going through something right now and I just need some help. If that's you, our care team has a page on the website. You go to get help, down to pastoral counseling, click on that, and, and our care team, or you can reach out to Jessica or Dan, and they can give you a recommendation for a counselor, or you can meet with one of our pastors. Our commitment as a, fam- a church family is to walk with you through some of these difficult seasons of life. Um, yeah, Jesus' love wants to meet you where you are. So did I cover everything? I think I covered all the intro stuff. All right, yes. So in 1997, James Cameron released his epic romance onto silver screens all over the uh, the United States and around the world, and it swept the world. It got 17 Academy Awards. It later won 11 11 of those uh, awards, tying Ben-Hur as the most Academy Awards or Oscars by a single film, including Best Picture and all those sorts of things. Can anyone guess? Titanic, well done, you cheaters. You looked at the back screen, didn't you? (laughs) You get no credit. All right, so, um, (laughs) yes, the answer is Titanic. And Titanic, it's this epic romance that takes place on the Titanic where Rose and Jack meet each other. He's poor, he's gambled his way onto the ship, and she's caught up in this, uh, this loveless relationship that her parents are forcing her into and all these sorts of things. Well, they meet, they fall in love. It's epic, it's beautiful. And spoiler alert, the boat sinks. <laughs> so if you didn't know that, you had plenty of times to watch the movie. And if you didn't know that, you should know that you, you should get a refund on your educational experience because <laughs> this is based on real story and the Titanic sinks. So anyway, they find themselves in the frigid water and they're trying to survive. And uh, Rose is here propped up on top of some sort of floating debris. Uh, by the way, in, in my opinion, I think he could have fit on top of that. Um, I'm just saying, I don't know, like maybe weight distribute, I don't, whatever. But I'm just saying, He's dangling inside of the water and freezing to death, and then she's chanting to him over and over and over again, I'll never let go. 
I'll never let go. I'll never let go. As she's letting him go into the abyss. Uh, literally, she's saying this. He's sinking down. Anyway, uh, for those of you purists out there and you Titanic fans, you're going to be like, that's not what she's saying. She's, she's not saying that I'm never going to let go of your body or whatever. You're, uh, she's saying I'm never going to let go of the promise that I made to you. And that promise was to survive, to try and live a full life, and to never forget him. And that, that I'll never let go kind of posture, it's, it's romantic on the silver screen, but it's also the posture that everyone who gets married enters into marriage with. I'm never going to let go. I'm never going to let go. Alex said it well last week. He said, in all of his pastoral experience and all of my pastoral experience, I've never encountered a couple who wanted to get married who started it with, I'm intending to let go. That's just not how marriages start. So the, pro the question is, if no one wants their marriage to fail, why do so many of them do just that? Or maybe a more helpful question for us this morning is, is there a way to approach, a way of thinking, a way of, pro of processing, a way of uh, engaging the subject that might increase the chances of success? We're gonna talk about some of those things today. You know, the scriptures paint a pretty beautiful picture of what marriage can be. Uh, there's, it, the, the, the scriptures give two enthusiastic thumbs up for marriage. Uh, Alex t taught on this passage last week uh, in Genesis chapter two. And what's interesting, and I apologize for the lines, I have to say it because I'm a graphic designer and they're driving me nuts. I don't know where they came from, but in translation. So I've said it, we can move on. All right, uh, the, in Genesis, God is creating the heavens and the earth, and he says he creates the light and the stars and the land and the earth and the animals and all this. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he comes to, and then he establishes relationships between uh, mankind and the rest of the animals. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he comes here, and the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So, Jesus confirms this. He, he holds marriage in a high regards. It's, it's a good thing in the scriptures. Sociology and psychology agree. Studies show that um, uh, couples that stay together ha are healthier physically. They live longer. There's lower rates of depression, uh, build more wealth over the lifetime of their, of their relationship. Children perform better in school. Children leave, uh, have less mental illness lower cases of crime, and on and on and on. I couldn't even fit it all on this one screen, but uh, sciences agree. It turns out God knows what he's talking about when he elevates marriage and the covenant of marriage. He knew what he was talking about. It is good for the soul. This is God's plan. This is God's heartbeat for this relationship. God's de design for marriage is to be life-creating and life-giving. From this relationship, you would literally be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You would create life together. And it would be a, a, a companionship that creates life for the soul. So the scriptures have a really good opinion about marriage. So what do you do when you find yourself in a marriage that doesn't feel life-giving? Or maybe if I say it a little bit more true to how you're feeling, <laughs> how can I possibly stay in this? It just hurts too much. Is there a point 
when divorce is the only option? And where's that line? We're gonna, we're gonna engage some of these heavy questions today, but hang with me. I think, like I said in the beginning, these are invitations to life. I think God has some life at the end of this for you. We're gonna dive into the book of Malachi. If you're a, if you're a follower alonger, that's not a thing. If you follow along in your Bible, you can turn there, Malachi chapter two. We're gonna hang out here for the most part, but because of the subject, we're gonna bounce around a little bit. Uh, if you are someone who follows along closely in the text, um, this is just for you. You'll know that I'm in a different translation than Alex normally is, and that's just because this is one of the most complicated to interpret, or not interpret, translate chapters in the Bible. So I just hunted around to try and find a translation that flowed the most naturally. It's actually not that hard to interpret, uh, but uh, it just flows a little bit better in the ESV. So that's what we're doing with the translations here. Um, But that's just for maybe four of you in the room. But we're going to dive in. Starting in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, this is a, uh, a conversation that God is having with his people after they've been in exile. So the people of God have, have failed God over and over. They've broken covenant with God over and over and over and over. They've been sent into exile and then they return from exile and then what happens? They start to fail their covenant relationship with God again. And so God is saying, this is how you've broken my heart, my covenant with you. And then this is how, and so that's where we find ourselves in chapter two. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob and the des- any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So the first thing we see, the first experience of divorce that's taking place in this text. Now rem- remember, this covenant he's talking about here in verse 10, it says, why are they faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers or our covenant with me? So this is, this is all wrapped up and tied with this covenant between Israel and God. It's not just about the covenant of marriage here, but covenant keeps rising to the surface in this conversation. So the first thing we see is there's some unknown guys in this story, and they are divorcing or setting aside their wives for social, religious, financial, political gain. So that's what would happen when they would, they would marry into these other religions that he mentions here in this passage is, is for some reason, some social tribal connection. The, the purpose of these setting aside of another marriage to marry another one of a foreign god was so that they would advance, them, <clears throat> advance themselves politically or religiously or financially or those sorts of things. God um, strongly does not enjoy this. So that's what the text is trying to say to us initially. Let's move on. 16, or 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why why does he not accept it? 
because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless or unfaithful, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So now that there's some interesting things going on here, he says, you have these altars, these religious activities that you're doing, and you don't feel like they're working properly for you. And what's going on there is that God is standing as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, the way that these guys were treating their wives was so damaging, so, so problematic that it was breaking out some of the order that God had designed for that relationship and for his relationship with uh, his people. There's some other things. So he's actually fighting for her, right, in this particular context. And God is, is, is trying to protect her. The man's been unfaithful, though she is your companion. And that's an actually interesting thing. There's some, some beauty and some goodness in this passage that's just deposited there. Um, it's very strange in this day and age to think, uh, for an ancient Mesopotamian culture, to think of uh, this marriage as about companionship, about this kind of depth of relationship. It was more transactional in that day and age. And so he's, God is trying to say that this was meant to be this, this camaraderie. This is elevating her to be sort of the shoulder-to-shoulder kind of thing. So there's a, a beautiful thing there. But then he says that she is his wife by covenant. And that word covenant there it keeps coming up. And then he goes on. He says, did he not make them one? Remember last week, if you weren't here, Alex talked about this. God says that he made husband and wife one and let the two never be separated. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their unity? And what was the one God seeking? God's godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirits and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I don't know if you've heard, maybe someone has told you in the past in conversations about divorce, or if you've, if you've been uh, through this or, or you've asked people about what God thinks about this, maybe this passage has actually come up but they said it to you a little bit differently. They may have said it like this translation here. The New King James Version actually says it in 16, it says, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Now, I think that the passage we just read in the ESV is actually a, a more accurate to the Hebrew for, for a ton of reasons. We could uh, talk about after a service if you really wanted to get in the weeds, but the, the sense actually carries some of this same weight in the passage, regardless. It puts the onus on the man. It says, for the man who does this does not love his wife, but divorces her. Rather than God hating, it's the man who's doing the hating. But the sense still carries the same sort of weight because God's opinion about this divorce is that it's violence. It's violence against the community. It's violence against the covenant of God. It's violence against the wife. So, God's opinion on divorce, yes, he, he thinks very highly of marriage, but his opinion on divorce is that it's a violent, painful, not good thing. The word covenant here is the word barit. And it's 
in, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew because uh, this is actually the only passage in the, new, in the entire Bible where the word covenant is directly in the same sentence as the word marriage. Now, there's a few other examples where it's implied, but it shows up all over the place in the context of marriage when it's talking about God covenanting in marriage-like language to his people. And so this is, the, this is what's going on with this word covenant. He's, he's translating my relationship with my people is this covenant, and this is the kind of covenant that you're in. But notice what he does in verse 15. Marriage is sealed by the ruach or the breath or spirit of God. So this is the same breath that created the heavens and earth. This is the same breath, the spirit of the living God actually seals the covenant of marriage. Did you know that? That's kind of, that blew my mind this week, thinking about, it's like when you got married, he breathed something into that. This is one of the reasons why this relationship has so much power, it's palpable, it has this ability to, to create life and energy and these sorts of things. This is where he says it, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union. So that word covenant, I said, God uses that word all over the place, but it's most of the time used when he's talking about his commitment to his people. For example, Jeremiah 3.20, Jeremiah 5.11, all of the book of Hosea is this big illustration where there's the prophet, God tells the prophet, I want you to go marry a prostitute. She's going to be unfaithful. She's going to run away from you. And then I want you to chase her down and marry her again. And I want you to show love and that your relationship with her is going to be this living illustration of my relationship with Israel. I fight and I pursue and I, no matter how unfaithful they are, I'm going to fight and I'm going to pursue. So this is the, this is the word covenant. This is barit. And then he transfers that word to this relationship that we have in our marriages. That's the kind of relationship that we're talking about. One of the examples is uh, Ephesians 5. So if you think, oh, this is all just Old Testament stuff. Here's the New Testament. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Again, he's connecting his relationship with the church with the subject of marriage. After all, no one ever hates their own body but they feed and care for it, their body just as Christ does the church. Again, he's connecting marriage with this idea of, of the church. Let's jump down to 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So God cares deeply about covenant. Why? Because it's illustrating, it's demonstrating, it's putting on display his covenanting nature with humanity. It's a serious deal. Serious deal in God's perspective because it was supposed to illustrate and demonstrate, be a living picture of how he relates to his people. So God is serious about covenant because he knows we need unconditional love. He knows we need this. This is what you were made for. So if you do a survey of the scriptures, this is sort of the standard. This is the, this is the plumb line. If you're looking for real sharp lines, this is what God's design was for this relationship. God's plan for marriage is that it would be lifelong covenant relationship. 
That's what he designed it to be. So, um, what happens when it goes wrong? So in, uh, I think it was 2014, Corey Mitchell did something that no one in history had done prior to her. She actually won the heads up Texas Hold'em poker, European poker tour for the second time. And it had never been done in history. And most people think it'll never be done again because it's poker such a uh, statistics are against you in this case. Now, the thing about poker is it is an all-in sport. <laughs> if you are going to win, you have to go all-in at some point. So when you enter into this game, you have to say, I'm willing to stake every single chip that I have on this game. It's the only way to win this game, long-term. And marriage is an all-in sport. When you enter it, you, you, you have to say, I'm ready to, to lay every chip on the line, and I'm ready to go all-in. But, 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 relationships are extremely hard work. So... If God, says, if God says that this thing called marriage is a beautiful thing, it's, it's supposed to be life-creating, life-giving, life then why does it have to be so much hard work? That doesn't feel life-giving sometimes. I don't need any amens. No hands raised, please. <laughs> um, it is hard work, right? You can ask my wife. <laughs> She's done some hard work this week. All right, so... Um, Hard work is part of the point. Hard work is part of the point of this relationship. When things get challenging, it's an invitation from God to go deeper with him. So I had a counselor tell me once that he, he believed that one of the gifts that God had given to humanity was marriage and parenting when it comes to this, um, this invitation to go deeper thing. Because he said, everyone starts a marriage with this thing, uh, this feeling of, um, man, I just feel good around them. They tell me how awesome I, I am. They're, they're, uh, they're beautiful. They think I'm awesome. All these things. There's all of these motivating factors for why you enter into a marriage. And I just, they complete me, all that stuff. We talked about that last week. But... Uh, that's how the relationship starts. But as the relationship progresses, some of those emotions start to wane. And they're not filling me up anymore. It's not working. This relationship isn't giving me the stuff that I originally had gotten into. And what I'm saying is that that's an invitation. That's where God says, okay, now's the chance to take some of your energy off of that relationship and say, God, I need more of you in order to be with them. I need more of you in order to properly love them. The pain, the challenge, the, the, some of the, the tension that you find in those relationships, it's actually working. So if you run into challenge, don't tap out because it's difficult yet. Because maybe that challenge is actually saying, you're ready for more. You know what? I wanna help you grow. You need more of me in order to go there. 
you're gonna need more of me. The same thing is true about parenting, by the way. When you have a kid, you, uh, they, they need you for everything. You are God to them. And f- being God feels good, right? <laughs> so they can't survive without you. They can't eat without you. They can't sit up without you. They can't do anything without you. And as they grow up, they need you a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. And it's, it's especially for moms, it's kind of tearing because you're like, my identity has been wrapped up in this. And it's an invitation. That identity crisis is an invitation to say, I'm going to take some of that and I want you to shift that identity back onto me. Now, here's the really cool thing that this counselor said is if you can actually get that energy now from Christ, it's like he says, here's the relationship back. The goodness, the beauty, the life, the energy, the camaraderie that you were hoping for is actually a gift on the other side of the hard work. Alex said it this, relationships are hard work, so let's work hard on our relationships. The goodness and the beauty of marriage is located on the other side of a self-sacrificial and self-giving covenant love. So if it gets hard and the heat is turning up, don't tap out yet, maybe there's some goodness on the other side. So here's some tips for going all in. Get some help. Not for your spouse, for you. And that's, that's funny, but I'm really bad at this one. I, I'm really bad at this one. When I think I'm right, I want to uh, say that it's, you know, if you could just, if, if you could get the counseling, you, my marriage took a huge turn when I said, maybe I'm the problem. And I went to counseling and, and I just processed some stuff. And turns out it had very little to do with my relationship. It had to do with some soul pain that I was going through. And that actually was a beautiful gift to me. Do the work for yourself. If it's not working, you've tried everything to fix them. Try fixing you. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it isn't good. I wish I had time to go in this Hebrews passage, but this was a huge gift to me. Um, uh, There's two kinds of discipline. I'll just give you a little hint. There's two kinds of discipline that you can think about. One is like a spanking. That's not the way you should think about the discipline of God. God doesn't spank you in that way when you're naughty. He disciplines you and trains you like a coach. So when the pressure comes in and it starts to rise up and you're like, I don't know if I can handle this, hear it as the voice of your coach saying, you've got this, two more reps. Two more reps, three more reps. You've got this. You've got this. It's actually the loving coach who believes in you that you can be transformed. So um, that's the Hebrews 12 passage there. It is a profound gift. This is what's on the other side of this hard work. It's a profound gift to look at your spouse and know they know the darkest parts of you and they stayed. This is the gift that takes place after the hard work. (laughs) I know with a ton of confidence that I have shown the darkest sides of me to my wife, and she stayed. That is food for my soul, and vice versa. Don't mistake self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice with codependence. For those of you, there's some of you out there who just give, and they're wired. You're wired to serve, and to give, and to serve, and to give, and that sort of thing. Um, 
I need you to know you might serve and give and give and you get all the way to the end of yourself and you say, I have nothing left to give. The only option for me is to get out of this relationship because normally when I serve and give, things go well for me, but this time it's not. Let me hear, let me, let me tell you there's another option. You could stand up to them. That might take a different turn, but the invitation, maybe you need to throw a stink. That could be what saves your marriage. So uh, that's an option. I would encourage you, if, if, you're, if you want to know more about that one, if that's you, if you're kind of the ones who just serves and serves and serves, sacrifice, 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 talk to a counselor about that. They can help you figure out what's going on there. And then you can come back next week because Alex will tell you all the other ideas. All right. God's original plan for marriage was that it would be a lifelong covenantal partnership for the good of the world. This was his design. But here's the deal. God meets us at the point of our need rather than at the point of our perfection. Okay, so up until this point, we've been talking about his design. This is what he wants. This is, this is how it's supposed to work, right? But God consistently throughout history, he meets his people at the point of our need. Or maybe it's said better this way. God always meets us where we are, not where he, we should be. This is the heart of God for you. He meets you where you are, not where he wishes you were. That's, that allows him to both extend a beautiful invitation of covenantal marriage, but then when it all comes undone, he can still extend an invitation of love. So what happens when you feel like you've gone all in? I did it. Did the counseling, I, I talked, I stood up for myself, I, I taught, we fought, we, we wrestled, and it's just become so toxic. What happens then? Well, maybe we could turn to a great pro- prophet, Kenny Rogers. You've gotta know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. Know when to walk away and know when to run. So the question is, is running an option? Is running an option? And the answer is yes. Um, is ish. Here's the problem. I'm not, I, I don't have time to go through an entire systematic theology on dis- divorce today. Uh, the last few sermons will address that some, to some extent. The next few sermons might address that. I will probably do a deeper dive on a podcast this week. But I do need you to know that there are some ways that God meets us in our brokenness because he paints a beautiful picture And then when we dash that picture with our sin and our brokenness, he grabs those pieces and he paints another one. Over, over again. So here's a few texts. Matthew 19, we already studied this text. Jesus says that there is, that divorce happens. It's implied in this passage. There's another one. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Uh, There's another example of how um, divorce is an option in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Matthew 1, 19. This one's interesting because if you say explicitly speaking in the New Testament, there's only two ways to get out. They've been, uh, they've committed adultery or abandoned it by an unbeliever. Like if you want to be that wooden, then what do you do with this one? Joseph is declared a righteous man for divorcing Mary. Neither one of those, well, they, she, you could say she was, it was implied that she might have committed adultery, but she said she had been 
uh, pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And it's declared when the narrator knows that she's done nothing wrong, that he's righteous for divorcing her. So if you, the systematic theology on the subject of divorce is way more convoluted. And you know why? Because God knows the complexity and the nuance and the challenge of trying to live in his way in a broken world. If you want a religious book that tells you in black and white terms what to do and what not to do, the Bible may not be the book for you. But what it is, what it is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's a, the heart of God for his people wading into the complexity and the nuance and the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness of life and meeting each person and then creating new stories. So God's design for marriage is good, but he knows the world is broken and there's worse things than divorce. So divorce is an extremely painful thing, even if, even if it is the only option. For some of you, you know that that's true. Your parents, your past, you know that divorce is, there's a tearing, there's a rending that takes place in the soul. And that's painful. But I want you to know, and I think the scriptures which say this loudly, divorce is not the end of your story. This is. God's love for you is the beginning and the end of your story, even if you've been divorced. The human soul, so the human soul was designed God tailor-made your soul to give and receive covenantal love. This is what your soul was made for. And the good news is, if you haven't been able to find that in marriage, the purest form of it was never meant to, to live in marriage anyway. Listen to this. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled? Shall we be saved through his life? So this is how far God is committed to this relationship. He says, you know what? While you're running the other direction, while you're crucifying me, I'm in, all in. That's how far his covenant in marriage is to you and to his people. Isn't that good? There's this amazing passage in Exodus 34, 6. It says, and God passed before Moses and he, and he proclaimed, God, this is God saying, this is who I am. This is my identity. This is God's core identity statement throughout the entire scriptures. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in covenantal. It's that same word. Covenantal, never giving up love. Did you know that this is actually the most quoted text in the Bible of the Bible? God didn't want us to miss this. He said, I don't want you to miss this. You cannot miss that this is my posture towards my people. It's this hesed word, 
The word, this covenantal love, it's, it's hesed. It's, it's I am all in to the point of death. So in the beginning of the message, we talked about covenant. And this ancient Mesopotamian um, picture of, of covenant is, is an actually adopted term. So God said, uh, God, when he was uh, working through the writers of scripture, this word kind of rose to the surface for how he wanted to describe his relationship with his people. And then he transfers that language to marriage. But he's actually adopting this ancient Mesopotamian practice of a suzerain vassal treaty. And so a suzerain vassal treaty is when a, a, higher, a more higher-powered king or a tribal leader would say uh, to a, young, a lower-powered, I will protect you, but you have to pay taxes to me and these sorts of things. And usually it's an initiated by the lesser power saying, I'm going to, I'm in desperate need of protection and I will pay taxes to you and so on and so forth. Um, and then we'll be in this covenant, right? So this is the context of what this word was in ancient Mesopotamia, but God does some interesting things. He twists it and he redeems this concept of covenant because um, in in. In Genesis, when God enters into covenant with Abraham, he uses the same word and then he uses an ancient Mesopotamian practice to seal the covenant. What they would do is they would take an animal and they would split the animal apart and then the lesser entity or the lesser king or tribal leader would walk through the the split parts of the animal and say, may this happen to me if I break this covenant. The higher-powered one wouldn't do that. They, there's no skin off their back if they, the covenant falls apart. They, one less person to watch out for, maybe a few less taxes. But what God does in Genesis is he, he sets up the ceremony. He has Abraham split the animal apart, and then he puts Abraham to sleep. And then he walks. He walks through the path. He puts him to sleep, and he says, I, the greater power, I will hold up this covenant. I'm the one that's going to do this, not you. And then, throughout the whole story of redemption, God demonstrates it again and again and again to a people who fail, and he comes back and he chases them down. And they fail again, and he chases them down. And he fail again, and he chases them down. So, this is what's going on in this passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite the team to come up, um, and we're going to close out the service in just a moment. But when marriage is at its best, it points us to the incomprehensible love of God. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, if you can start to receive the fountain of that good, beautiful love that your soul was designed for, maybe you'll have the energy to then turn and pour out that kind of love in your marriage. That was what it was supposed to do. And that is a beautiful thing. And that's what your soul was made for. (laughs) I love this little storybook Bible. Uh, there's some great little ways that they approach this. And I just want to read one little section from this because I think it illustrates for us in closing 
what this covenantal love looks like. So the story I'm reading is out of the book of Genesis and, and Adam and Eve have, have committed the sin and they've broken the relationship with God and it's all bad and they're cast out of Eden and all of this stuff and then the story picks up like this. God loved his children too much to let the story in there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him deep in their hearts. God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearn for their home. Do you feel that yearning? That yearning is not necessarily for a marriage that all comes together. The yearning is for God. And the byproduct might be your marriage. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve, I will not, it will not always be so. I will come and rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the darkness and the sadness and, let, and, and you, sadness you let in there. I am coming back for you. And he would, one day God himself would. If you've never experienced that love, that's the invitation today. I'm gonna to encourage you to stand. We're gonna close with this song, but I'm also gonna have a prayer team come up. And if, if, you're, if there's a something in your soul right now that says, I need that, or I've lost that, it's, it's missing in me. I need that kind of never giving up, always forever love. Today's the day you can come up and be prayed for and, and start to re-experience that or experience for the first time. Or maybe you've been through a divorce and you're like, I thought it was gonna be there, but God, will you help me transfer that, that craving that I have to you? You can come up and be prayed for. So I'd encourage you, while we sing this song, come and get prayed. Don't miss out on an opportunity to just reconnect with the never giving up, always, forever love. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.